Tonight's New Testament reading comes from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good night, good night. My name is Andrew Russell. Um, It's my pleasure to be here. And let's pray. If you're like me, rushing in in the weather, trying to find parking, we need prayer. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so let's just, you know, kind of woo-saw and, and allow God to uh, speak to our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus, and we pray that your word would go forth in power. Lord, I humbly come before you, uh, just a simple man, and I pray, Lord, that uh, your glory would shine forth in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. So today, I want to, tonight I want to talk about why God's word matters. And so we've been looking at, we actually started this series in James last week, Sunday. Uh, and Pastor Glenn Holberg was talking about, you know, trials and temptation, counting it all joy. What does wisdom look like? And so today, I want to focus more on the Word of God, particularly through the lens of listening, looking, and living by God's Word. And so if you're a note-taker, you don't get anything tonight. This is my thesis statement. This is the argument that I'm putting forth. Uh, and, and, And my argument is this. We should engage God's Holy Word because in it is true freedom. We should engage God's Holy Word because in it, is true freedom. Uh, former IBM CEO Sam Palmisano, he talked to a group of leaders and someone asked him why his experience working in Japan was so important to his leadership development. And he said the following words. He said, because I learned to listen by having only one objective, and that is comprehension. I was only trying to understand what the person was trying to convey to me. I wasn't listening to critique. I wasn't listening to object. I wasn't even listening to convince. I was listening solely for comprehension. When it comes to listening, we have a problem in the United States of America. And it is my problem. It's all of our problems. We have a hard time listening. (laughs) We are action-oriented people, right? 
Uh, we don't know how to relax or take breaks or be still. We're, we're constantly working and moving and critiquing, analyzing. And even when we, we do plan leisure activities, it stresses us out. We believe that, that too much leisure or daydreaming is somewhat sinful. And so uh, we, we identify ourselves with our professions. And, and, and if you lived in D.C. long enough, you've always been asked this question. What do you do? Where do you work? Whereas in, in being-oriented cultures, relationships take precedence over work. Being-oriented cultures value harmony, respect for someone's social status, tradition, loyalty, or honor. And in being cultures, the question one typically, typically gets is, where are you from? What's your family background? What's your last name? And so the emphasis is not on what you do, but who you are. And the culture that James is writing to is a being-oriented culture. It is a culture that prizes people over possessions, relationships over rank. Now, notice in the beginning of James how James introduces himself. James says, I'm a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James could have said, I'm the half-brother of Jesus he could have said, I'm one of the 12 apostles. He also could have said, you know, I'm a leader of the Jerusalem church. Because even Paul said in Galatians 2 that the three pillars of the Jerusalem church and, and James is one of them. But James, he, he, he doesn't do those things. Because he knows that he is speaking to a people that prizes being over doing. And so when it comes to the topic of listening, James says to be quick to listen Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger because God wants to engage in a relationship with you. God wants to talk to you. Let's, let's look at it. It says here in verse um, chapter 19, verse 19, said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God wants to engage with his people. And so he asked them to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and quick to listen. And, and James also talks about receiving the implanted word of God. And that word is the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says to receive it, to receive that word with meekness and humility. Herein lies our problem. When it comes to listening in the United States of America, generally we're slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. And, and I'm going to give some poor listening um, habits, and they apply to me, and maybe you might, you know, get something that correlates to your life. But just to give us an idea to help us understand our, our, our issue of listening, here are some poor listening habits. And like I said, they apply to me first, so I don't, I don't want to be like, you know, you know, so you can hear some of these and, and, and point at your neighbor. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me first, all right? So here are some poor listening habits. First, looking at the speaker, but waiting to speak your mind. How many, how many of you have ever done that? You, you're looking at somebody, and you're, you're, you're shaking your head, but in your mind, you're, already, you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. And you're looking at them. And I, I do this to my wife all the time. Baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then the, here's another one. Overreacting to push-button emotional words. And these words could be, for example, reparations, 
or hell, abortion, uh, or, you know, there, there are all types of words. But for me, um, when, when I overreact, when my little son, uh, Elijah, who was about two years old, when he says this particular word, when he calls me a baby chicken wing, I, anything he says after that, I can't, I can't, I can't respond. You know what I'm saying? I, it's hard for me to listen. I'm like, you just call me a baby chicken wing. And so it's on. So we, we go back and forth, mosquito face and all. So we just, you know, I'm trying to, trying to teach him to, you know, to, to be quick. But then also we, we here are some other, I'll name two more. We listen only for the facts and then consider everything else opinion. That's, uh, another one, being easily distracted or listening only to people you agree with. So I asked my Facebook friends to tell me what are the qualities of a good listener. And some said empathy, humility, not talking, restating what someone has said for clarity. But the one that hit me the most, the one response that really, I was like, wow, I did not see that one coming. A friend of mine named Joshua Hall, he said, and I quote, I think a good listener is a safe person. Unless a person is safe, he or she will not be approached with deep issues to begin with. A safe person does not listen with with the goal of persuading or providing a quick answer. A safe person does not over-identify with anyone who is over-identify, sorry, with what anyone is feeling or going through. A safe person does not make character judgments about a person from an emotionally charged conversation because they understand that the things said out of deep emotions are not always representative of a person's true character. And it's, it's interesting to me that uh, we see that James says to be slow to anger when listening to God's word. And I believe it does apply to God's word. Yes, it does. We can, we can take application with our own sense of anger. But I, I, I would argue that it speaks of God's word because God's word will make you angry. It will get it will, get, it will get into an emotionally charged conversation with you. It will make judgments about your, your sexuality, your marriage, your, your work, and even your leisure time. And in those emotionally charged conversations with God's word, my question is, do you find God's word safe? Do you find God as safe or trustworthy? Because if you do not see God as safe, then you will have a difficult time listening to his word. James says to receive with humility the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. You see, God wants to save you. He doesn't want to provoke you to anger. His chief goal is not to judge you because he loves you. And that's why he asks you to listen to him. He wants to engage in a relationship with you. He wants to change you and make you perfect and complete and lacking nothing, as it says in chapter one. And Dr. Rishab Dasani said the following. He said, we listen only to the extent that we are open to change. 
And those who are not open to change are not willing to listen. So my question is, are you open to change? Are you willing to hear what God's word says about you? And my second point, looking. What does it mean to look into God's word? So we, we talk about listening, right? We, we want to listen because God wants to engage in relationship with us. And he says, and then says also to look. And we, and we see it here in the scriptures. It says, for anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he is like. Now, when, when I saw that, that word, the mirror, I'm like, okay, God's word is a mirror. So I did some research on mirrors and looking at yourself in the mirror. And my kids love to look at themselves in the mirror. I mean, we have mirrors, you know, in D.C., they have these old houses. They have a bunch of mirrors. I guess the two houses that we've rented have a lot of mirrors. I don't know if your house has a lot of mirrors, but my house has a lot of mirrors. And so anytime my kids just walk past, I could be talking to them face to face, and they look at themselves in the mirror, and they'll just be like, (laughs) you know, they'll be dancing. And I'm just like, focus, look at me. But they love to look at themselves. But what, what do you see? What do you see when you look at yourself in the mirror? You know, I did this uh, experiment a couple days ago, <clears throat> and I, w- I went in the bathroom, and I was like, all right, I'm going to look at myself in the mirror for about three minutes just to see, you know, what will happen. And I-, I-, I recommend this, really. For some of you, you know, three minutes is, is not enough, but it's all good. It's all good. This- I'm just giving you something that's small, right? We can, we can take small steps. Um, so I looked at myself for three minutes, and the first things I noticed were my flaws. I was like, man, I got wrinkles, I got gray, I have a bump. That was the first thing I noticed. And then as I was looking at myself, I was like, why am I noticing my flaws? Why am I negative toward myself? And then I began to look intently, deeply, and I noticed my eyes. And then I was like, wow. I really haven't really looked at my eyes in a long time. And I was like, I really appreciate my brown eyes. And then I began to appreciate myself. But it's interesting because when, uh, for a lot of people, when we look at the mirror, the first thing we see is like, oh, look at my flaws, look at my wrinkles. And for some of us, we, we ignore them. We're like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, you know. But God's word is like a mirror. And, and James says it, it wants to reflect the way that not only that God sees us, but ultimately how we should see ourselves. James says to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James says you must practice what you preach. True faith is not theoretical, but it is practical. James 1, 19 through 27 parallels Matthew chapter 23 Uh, When Jesus uh, was talking about the scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus said this, he says, do not follow the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is our problem when it comes to God's word. We, we, 
We know what God commands us to do, but it's, it's, we have a hard time living by those commandments. We know what the, what the biblical scholars say about scripture, yet we don't know how it applies to our lives. So we can look at the, the mirror of God's word, but not into it. And a, in, in a 19th century philosopher, Kierkegaard, said the following. He says, Christian scholarship is the human race's prodigious invention to defend itself against the New Testament to ensure that one can continue to be a Christian without letting the New Testament come close. Kierkegaard is not, uh, he's not totally condemning seminary training or biblical scholarship. His concerns is that people would see scholarly work as an end in itself rather than as a mean to an end of listening and understanding what God is saying in his word. You can be so wrapped up in the historical Jesus. You can be wrapped up in biblical criticism and commentaries and expert analysis. But then you can miss what God wants to reveal to you through his word. Until you look inside the mirror of God's word, then you will not fully understand how God sees you and how God wants to transform you into his image. We must look into the mirror rather than at the mirror. Looking at the mirror distances ourselves from looking at the hard truths of scripture. You can see this, uh, the Bible as an ancient artifact filled with myths to be studied and parsed out rather than a love letter from the beloved. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a love letter from the greatest love of the world has ever known. But what's interesting, when we look at uh, the scripture, James says, looking, being a, 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 a doer of the word and not just a hearer, and he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and you know, when I, when I read that, I was like, the law of liberty. That, doesn't that seem oxymoronic, like laws and liberty? How is the Bible a law of liberty? Some might see that as a contradiction. But there are many laws of liberty. We, 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 we live by them. One is marriage, right? You're married to only one person. And that law frees you to love and to commit and to be faithful. You know, I have, uh, 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 I, I will have almost five kids by two weeks from now. And I see my wife laughing, so what I, baby, I didn't even plan what I'm about to say. Well, all I say is we need some help sometimes, and I, I don't need another woman, but, you know, so a CG or, you know, a whole community, I think that that could help, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> so it, it, we, 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 we are free to, to, to be faithful. We're free to commit into the marriage covenant. And then another law of liberty is the law of gravity, right? The law of gravity prevents us from flying off the face of the earth. We, we're free to run. We're free to jump. I mean, imagine you could just jump and you just keep on going. That, that, that would be crazy. But the law of gravity, it, it, it gives us freedom. Traffic laws, they give us freedom. I know some of you, I don't know, you know, when, when it says red, for some of us, that's, that's a yellow light. And, I, and I've seen it in D.C. It's like, oh, Lord, Jesus, help. <laughs> but traffic laws should give us freedom. And, and, and finally, the laws of physics and mathematics, they, they make planes and cars work. And so we, we see what laws of liberty look like in our everyday lives. And God's word wants to make us free. 
And he wants to make us free to be what God has created us to be, which is to be a doer of his word. He wants us to have freedom in applying God's word to our lives. And our current culture views freedom in a negative sense, which is a freedom from something. A lot of times, freedom, we would say we we want freedom from barriers or constraints on our choices. Yet we do not see that there is a a positive sense to freedom, freedom to do something and to live in a particular way. Because a lot of times when we talk about freedom, I I want freedom from, I need, there's always this negative sense of freedom, right? Freedom, you know, let go of the barriers, let go of the restraints, let me be able to choose. But then my question is, what is it of freedom to? And our modern culture sees freedom as an end in itself, rather than as a means to an end. We should be using our freedom to do something, and because our culture is afraid of moral absolutes and telling people what they should do with their freedom, our culture says nothing. And it leaves people uh, by themselves, independent, autonomous, searching for what do I do with my freedom? And Tim Keller says this, by itself, autonomy is incomplete. But the word of God is freedom. Psalm 19 says this, it says, the, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are true. And this is the freedom that God gives. He wants to give us freedom to be wise, freedom to have joy, freedom to be what God has created us to be. And and this leads me to my final point, which is living by God's word. So we, we looked at listening, we looked at looking, and now finally living by God's word. James says the following thing. He says, pure and undefiled religion is this in verse 27. Pure religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James talks about what pure religion before God looks like. But before we look at what James says, here's my question to you. How do you define religion? Is it simply a, a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is it something more? When many people talk about religion, they, they think man-made traditions in which people describe God in various ways. And those people make up their own rituals and practices that appease their God. And there is no connection between divine revelation and human speculation. And some people say, and they say the following things, and I've heard this over and over again, religion is for the weak-minded. It is used an excuse not to use your mind. It's anti-intellectual. Religion cannot provide solutions to the current problems that we face. And you might, have, you might say some of these things, like, you know, what is religion? Religion, it, it's just a bunch of people making up their own rules to satisfy some type of uh, weakness in their own lives. And, and maybe you've tried religion and it has failed you, but then what do you do? Well, you can look within and discover your own beliefs, your own systems, and your own rituals. You, you can discard those things that you don't agree with and incorporate other things that you do agree with. You may say, I respect Jesus' moral teachings, but I reject the rest 
of Scripture, but that is in itself a new religion. You've you've created your own uh, liturgies and practices to live by. However, the religion that, that James teaches is much different. It is first rational, it's practical, and it also is compelling. It's rational in, the terms, in terms of wisdom. Living by God's word means that you control your tongue. Let's, let's read it. It says here, if anyone thinks he, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So living by God means controlling your tongue. The mark of a religious person is the one who has self-control over their tongue because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good tree, a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. This is wisdom. Those who live according to God's word produce good, to produce good fruit. But secondly, living by God's word is practical because you can apply it to your life. James talks about visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And you might say, you know what, Andrew, anybody can do that. I don't need to be a Christian. I don't, I don't need to, to read God's word in order to visit orphans and widows. And that's true. Non-religious people do great work in the area of social justice and taking care of the marginalized and disaster relief and a whole host of other good things. But the motivation for a person who lives by God's word to do those things are completely different because the motivation flows from God's character. This is how God treats people. To live like God is to act like God. So God is the one who visits the orphans and the widows, and he is calling his people to do the same. Paul says that the love of Christ compels me. In Matthew 25, it says, when Jesus comes again, he will say to those who are in his kingdom, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you you welcomed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, "When, when did we do all these things? And Jesus will respond, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So therefore, visiting uh, the orphans and the widows have eternal value. It is, it is more than just a moral event. Moralism uh, teaches that you can be good and, and a loving person without Jesus Christ. Moralism says that love your neighbor, uh, do good to others, and they will do good to you. Be a good person, and good things will happen to you. And you might say, well, Andrew, what's wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that, but I, I, I want to argue that there's something better. The gospel of grace. The gospel of grace says love your enemies. It says do good to others even when they refuse to do good to you. Do not even be good, but be holy because Christ is the standard of goodness and not man. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We didn't do anything good to earn God's favor or God's salvation. It is only because of Christ's death and resurrection that we may receive any grace from God the Father. He first loved us and everything we do is aimed to glorifying him. So finally, living by God's word is compelling. 
It's compelling because you become more like God, and that is a poet. The word be, uh, to, for, to be a doer in the Greek literally uh, is poetas, which we get our English word poet. And so God is calling us to be poets. He is calling us to take God's word like a poet. We have, we have amazing poets in our midst. And every time I listen to poets and I hear spoken word, I think about the beauty. I think about the, the complex, the complexity distilled in beauty, like raw honey. That's the shout out to Master Ray in the back. Um, and because and, when I think about poetry, poetry, it, it takes complex, it takes the realness, it takes pain, it takes joy. It takes all of these things and it distills it in rhyme scheme and metaphors and analogies. And God is saying, I want you to be a poet of my word. I want you to take my word and I want you to, to, to translate it in beautiful ways in my creation. I, I want you to, to, to see yourself as a creator, as a creator of beauty, to distill my word in, in such a way that it makes sense, that it hits the heart. That it hits not only the mind, but also the heart. Now, freedom from addiction is inspiring, but freedom to live in complete satisfaction, to do great feats that you can never do by yourself, that is compelling. And this is what the gospel of Jesus gives. It compels us to participate in the divine nature, to bring beauty, truth, meaning, love, significance, freedom, belonging, and imagination not only to those around us, but to the orphans and to the widows, the homeless and the marginalized. This, it would, this is what it means to be a doer of God's word. It means to bring God's character to life, to the broken, to the poor, to the at-risk young person. Because honestly, this is where your theology and, 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 and the reality of it Makes sense. You know what? My dad planted a church in inner city Memphis. And one of the things I love about the hood is that it, it, there's no faking. There's no faking. You have to be genuine. Because pe- in the, especially in the hood in Memphis, Tennessee, folks could sniff out a fake. And that was one of the things that really strengthened my faith. Because in the hood, uh, you know, folks are dealing with real life issues, not like, you know, obviously we are as well, but they're dealing with it in, a, in a, such an, an exponentially hard way. And I saw young boys and young girls saying, okay, you talk about Jesus. So what does Jesus mean? How, how is Jesus going to put food on the table? How, how is Jesus going to help me and my mother who is single? How is, how is Jesus going to get my daddy out of prison? And I realized that my theology means that I must see those who I come into contact as Jesus Christ, because that's the, that's the, that's the motivation. I, I must see uh, not only their need, but to see that as I, as I love, as I uh, serve, I am serving Jesus Christ. I am showing people what it means to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what James is after. He's after genuine faith. What does it mean to be a doer of God's word? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is faith in action. This is the freedom that Jesus Christ affords to us, to take God's word and to make beautiful poetry to the least of these, 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask, O oh God, that you would help us to listen to your word. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us to look intently into it. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to live by it. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would be sweet like honey. I pray, Lord, that you would even find us, that you would seek after us, that you would show us the beauty of your character in your word. And I pray that you would help us to be poets, to display that beauty to the orphans and the widows and all those who 